slow mo. He's got me walking that grief walk. Going slow mo. He's got me talking that grief talk. Going slow mo. He's got me clocking the way. It's the Miami Night Show. Hey, yeah. Slow mo. He's got me walking that grief walk. Going slow mo. He's got me talking that grief talk. Going slow mo. He's got me clocking the way. What up, tribe? It's Miami Night Show, Master hey, Coach. Yeah. Welcome to the Miami Night Show. You got me walking that grief walk. It's time for grief talk, y'all. Addison DeWayne is a research-loving elementary school teacher living and working in the historically marginalized neighborhood of Oak Park, Sacramento. She has taught all K through sixth grades, except for first, and served a school site as an instructional coach and new teacher mentor. The entirety of her educational experience has been with trauma-affected students. This fall, she will embark on a new learning journey as the first educator in the nation to pursue a PhD in educational psychology with an emphasis in trauma response practices at Wayne State University. In her free time, she enjoys reading, drinking tea, and shopping for more striped clothing. Let's welcome her. Welcome, Grief Nation listeners. And today on Grief Talk, we're going to be speaking with um, Addison Dwayne, we're so blessed to have her here today, and she's going to be talking about what is a trauma-informed educator. Hi, Addison, how are you? Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, thank you for having me. This is going to be really fun. You're so welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, let's talk about the power of trauma-informed education. Yeah, so I, just in general, in terms of sort of where it began and kind of the information around it, I think being a trauma-informed educator is very, it's very different. It looks and sounds very different than, than a traditional classroom teacher, which I think is very powerful and such a cool thing. Um, I think the number one shift that we have moved away from as teachers that are really developing and also implementing these practices is that we are really shifting away from looking at challenging behaviors as a result of trauma mm -hmm. and, and now looking at instead of saying, oh, they need a consequence, oh, we need to do something really punitive, we now analyze those behaviors as a lagging skill or an unmet need as a direct response to a traumatic event or chronic stress that they've experienced. Um, oh. And so it's really moving away from respond, moving towards responding instead of reacting. It's teaching about the different parts of the brain. It's having kids know what the release of adrenaline feels like in their body, what the emotional brain is, how to regulate, what it feels like to be dysregulated. Um, and all of those things, just knowing what I know in my own experience, have truly changed the game when it comes to educating the next generation of our kids. Oh my God, beautifully said. Thank you so much for- And I'm so passionate about it, so you'll have to cut <laughs> yes. me off. If I talk too much, you're gonna have to be like, wrap it up here, okay? <laughs> no, you are awesome. I love it. I love your spirit. Share oh your journey of becoming a trauma-informed educator. Yeah, so it, it's been um, it's been a journey, let me say that. So yeah, so I've been teaching um, for the last six years as an elementary school teacher, and I've taught a mix of intermediate, uh, four, five, six, and primary kindergarten through second grades. Um, I've also worked as an instructional coach for beginning teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but also in the same vein, I am a researcher through and through. Yes. And so I'm always the person on the team that is bringing a research study. I'm bringing an article, a book to a meeting. And so my journey to becoming trauma responsive really started with my school administration, bringing this idea to us teachers and saying, you know, there is this 
practice that exists out there. Does anyone want to kind of dig in, learn more? And they facilitated a lot of great book studies and discussions. Um, and I really took it and ran because it just spoke to me on a level that I'd never really experienced before as a teacher. You know, I was yeah. really passionate about culturally responsive learning and restorative practices. But when I heard this, which was kind of the blending of all of those things, mm -hmm. I just knew that this is exactly where I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so then from there, just attending the national conference and now doing a trauma-informed pilot in my own fifth grade classroom, I'm just really actively daily working to, to facilitate a classroom environment that's going to meet the needs of my students who have experienced stress and trauma. Wow. That, that's amazing because it's, that has always been needed, but I guess it's, it's more so now the time, I guess, you know, of course the research and the studying and that's how we've gotten here. And I'm, I'm just so appreciative that there is that this type of practice is out there for students because we need it it's long time overdue <laughs> it is and it is to your point too you know the research is still relatively new yeah because we're slowly seeing things and there's studies and there's not even a national quantitative study yet you know everything's qualitative and smaller yeah. and done by social workers and doctors and so it's cool that teachers have kind of really grasped onto this concept you know partnering with the practitioners who are licensed to do the, right. the therapy and the work on that um but to bring it to the students because teachers have an incredible impact on a large oh yes yeah. oh yes i yeah. totally agree oh yes you, you, i mean there's 30 kids in my room every day that's a lot of bodies that's a lot of yeah a lot absolutely. of absolutely bodies i might add <laughs> But there's a lot of them. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. um, how does your classroom culture differ now than before your training? Yeah, so in every way, truly. Mm -hmm. I think it started small with some mindset shifts, just like those understanding the lagging skills, the unmet needs, the, the need to really move away from the punitive consequences. Mm -hmm. But then there were then there became sort of these two large areas, these kind of buckets that have really led to a completely different classroom culture. And so the first is really cultivating and creating a sense of belonging in the room. And this is something that I think comes naturally to a lot of teachers, but for others, it has to really be, we have to really pay attention to it. Yeah. And so one of the biggest pieces is literally as adults adjusting the, the classroom space so that we are allowing students to know I am, I'm welcome here, I'm yeah. loved here, and I'm safe here. Mm -hmm. And that shifting towards safety, just even that like general idea of safety has been so crucial for me in this last year of doing this pilot because I mean, small things, like I didn't even think about the way I asked students to line up mm -hmm. would be something I needed to adjust from like, all right, stand, you know, facing forward with your voices off to now like, hey, do you have a safe body? Like, is, do you have a safe space around you? Yeah. Um, that has just been a really, really cool thing. Um, but the tone even makes a difference. It does, it totally makes yeah. a difference. But things yeah, yeah. that I, I think we weren't like cognizant of before mm -hmm. we got this training or had the research to back it. Yeah. Um, so the I'm here, I'm loved, and I'm safe, um, you know, because we know with trauma, chronic absenteeism is a big issue. Yeah. And so a lot of times it's um, kids don't feel welcome. They don't feel safe if you've been suspended, if you've been asked to leave the classroom space for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to re-enter. And so um, just being more mindful of that and, and really trying to, to take some proactive measures to mitigate those um, sort of negative effects, has that's kind of the first bucket of the classroom culture shifting. Okay. Wow. And then the second is the literal classroom setup. So mm -hmm. 
my classroom, I love to tell people that my classroom looks very different than a traditional classroom that you might remember in your days going to school or that you might see right now. Mm -hmm. um, because we know that the environment cues the kids. And so we really need our environments and my classroom space to speak to the basic needs of my students. So from small things to the way the desks are configured in only groups of two or four, um, to the color scheme, the Absolutely. color that I choose to bring into my room or not to bring into my room. You know, we know that hot pinks and reds are very dysregulating. Mm -hmm. And so for us, like we are very pro neutrals. Yeah. And for like, if you think about a therapist's office, we yeah, yeah. are now trying to do that in our classrooms, which is very different than a lot of, like, I remember it looked like a rainbow vomited in my second grade classroom when I was little. <laughs> like this is, that's, it's different. And a lot yeah. of elementary things are very colorful. And yeah. you know, for trauma affected kids, that's that visual piece, is yeah. an, it impacts them. And so my room looks very different. Like when you walk in, it's very different because mm -hmm. I'm really trying to meet the needs of those students and, and not dysregulate them more in the physical space. Wow. That, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I can only imagine being in there. Now you make me want to feel like I have to go to the classroom. <laughs> Gosh. Well, what are the principles of, of trauma-informed um, trauma practices? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of what we kind of spoke to, you know, before. I think people have varying definitions and degrees of what what the principles are. I think the number one, more than anything, is just establishing the sense of safety. I think kids need to know that their classroom spaces yeah. are safe spaces for them to learn, mm -hmm. but then also to feel their feelings, but also to regulate emotionally, um, to have relationships with their teachers, to have connections with peers. All of those pieces have to be there, and that all is rooted in this culture of safety. I think another principle is just really a mutual trust and support and yeah. recognizing that this that this type of practice is going to give kids what they need in a way that's going to offer some really incredible support. Um, and of course, other things like choice and cultural responsiveness and non-punitive practices um, are in there too. But I think the last one as well is just empowerment, really empowering students to, to own their journey and to to be able to have those coping strategies and the skills that they so badly need to to regulate their emotional brain. Yeah, and that's important for them to understand that. To just exactly. understand that there are coping skills, you know, yes. we're not taught those, but if you guys are teaching them now, then that's amazing. And we're really even starting before that. Like we are going into the like first explicitly teaching just what are the emotions? Like what Absolutely. does it feel like in your body when you're mm -hmm. having that mm -hmm. frustrated? And then, okay, now that you're feeling those things, which you have a right to, every human has a right to feel. Right. Now what can you do to appropriately cope? Because kids have learned coping skills. They might not be appropriate or socially accepted, but we all have them. Yeah. And so teaching the sort of more peer-reviewed or scientific or appropriate ones um, is, a, is a big piece. That's a big principle of, of the practices as well. Okay. Can you tell us um, what, are, what are adverse childhood experiences, the yeah, ACE? So Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because I just had the I just had the opportunity. Actually, I'm gonna like nerd out for just one second. <laughs> I met Dr. Nadine Burke Harris a couple weeks ago. She is the doctor who brought adverse childhood experiences or the study to Kaiser in California um, mm -hmm. in 1998. They started this ACEs study, and so the idea with ACEs or adverse childhood experiences is that there are a list of ten experiences that you can 
live before the age of 18, um, that ranging from things like abuse and neglect, domestic violence, mental illness, substance abuse, um, all sorts of things. And what, what it is essentially is it's kind of like a list and you kind of say like, yes, I've experienced it. No, I haven't. And at the end, the score that you get for your ACEs, for your adverse childhood experiences, they have learned um, is a determinant for some of the, the health issues later in life. Okay. Um, and so the, 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 assess, the test was done to kind of understand why certain populations or certain people experience heart, heart issues and, and kidney failure and things like that later on in life. Um, and an, an important thing too that I always like to say with ACEs because I think teachers hear about ACEs and they're like, oh, I want to know if my students, you know, lived this. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite uh, trauma-informed practitioner, Alex Chevron, always, always, always tells people it is not our job as teachers to administer that assessment. Like that mm -hmm. is for medical practitioners, doctors yeah. um, to, to do this study. And then we don't, we don't, we're not going to be trauma detectives. We just want to support the effects as best as we Right. Can. Okay. And I'm glad that you said that because I don't know why I broke it out. I said ACEs, but it's ACEs. Thank you yes. for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for correcting oh. me so that I'll, I'll, I want to be correct in what I'm and saying. And it's an acronym. So I think either way you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, cool. but I just, I really, I'm so grateful to you coming on the show because this, this issue is so important about what you guys are doing and what's the, and the changes that are coming. And a lot of parents don't even know that this is out there or there are schools that they can opt into that have these programs. So I'm, I'm excited to learn all that you can share. And the cool thing too for me is I'm just a regular general ed teacher. You know, like I'm, just yeah. in, I'm in a regular public school. And so mm -hmm. what's awesome is that anyone can implement, like anyone who's interested in the research and the learning yeah. can make some of these minor and then some major adjustments um, to better support kids. Okay. And because trauma, and you know this, but trauma is from low-income communities to the richest community right there is neglect in gated communities in the same way that there is you know like there it, it spans all all populations and so right. i think it's important that everyone is aware of it yeah and I, that's why i think it's so cool that the conversation's really changing and that yeah. we are starting to hear more like i was so excited when oprah had dr bruce perry on because mm -hmm. it was for 50 minutes 60 minutes because it was like yes we're talking about trauma <laughs> bringing it where we're bringing it more wide right back. and we're excited about talking about trauma isn't that something <laughs> i know isn't that funny it's like not about the trauma right but right 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 just to have the conversation that's just totally. us being nerdy like you said earlier yeah, no exactly yeah. uh -huh. exactly so yeah. how do students respond to trauma oh god in so many ways right uh, you have seven hours no i'm just kidding <laughs> um no so i would say so we know that sort of the the biological effects of a traumatic event or a stressed nervous system is immediately um, your body goes into either fight, flight, freeze, or faint. Mm -hmm. And so in the classroom, this presents itself in a lot of different ways. Um, so fight and flight are the ones that we see very often. Freeze is another huge one. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of within those, we kind of like to categorize them into a hyper state of arousal and then a hypo state of arousal. Um, and so like in my physical classroom space, a hyper aroused student who has experienced a trauma or chronic stress because chronic stress affects the brain the same way that a traumatic event does, mm -hmm. um, is I'll have a kid who is totally unable to focus, cannot sit still, um, maybe aggressive, a little resistant, argumentative, anxious, kind of like wound up, yeah. um, maybe impulsive, struggles with self-control, 
or self-regulating in general. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the one the one category. And then the other is that hypo arousal state where students are really defiant, they're withdrawn, they just shut down completely. They're gonna avoid tasks. Um, they're often the students that teachers without this knowledge will perceive as not caring, forgetful, lazy. I hate those terms so much, but I've heard them in my time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think the other piece too that we talked about a little bit is that chronic absenteeism. So they're mm-hmm. going to be party. They're going to be absent. They're going to mm-hmm. literally be like not hyper, like the opposite of that. Um, right. And what's interesting about hypo arousal is that that um, Dr. Stuart Shanker, who wrote the book Self Reg, um, he he argues that that state is the most dangerous one to be in because it takes the longest to get out of, and so that's really hard um, when we are experiencing this in the classroom because it takes a long time, and then also we would never want our communication, our behavior management, to send students into that state. Like I'm not going to engage in a power struggle that's going to mm-hmm. lead to a shutdown because yeah. I know that shutdown is going to take way longer yeah. than, you know what I mean, to, mm-hmm. to regulate through, um, yeah. which is easier said than done. Oh yeah, I understand. I understand that very well. I have a grandson that ha- um, that is mild autistic, so I get the 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 sh- you know the whole shutdown issue will be way longer than the whole you know acting out. It, it really does, and it's just you know trying to even you know when I even think about him being in school you know I as just as a grandparent or just a mother would think about you know sending their child to school knowing that they have these these issues or concerns not issues but that they suffer from these types of of diagnosis that um sometimes it's just scary to send your child to school because you don't because you don't know how they are going to react today yeah you know especially when it there's some when there's an added stress to it which could be um a disorder or you know yeah autism or you know that type of thing so um, i i commend you guys for the work that you do um how important is it for the teacher to develop interpersonal neurobiology skills (laughs) i yeah i I say for me i'm like so important because i am the like science geek that wants to know everything but truly knowing the neurobiology of what's happening has been an absolute game changer for me. And I say this only because when we are experiencing, like for me personally, when I'm experiencing a challenging behavior, removing the student and making it about the brain is such an objective approach that now my responses are so vastly different than they once were. Mm -hmm. It has gone from me thinking, oh, he's being willfully defiant to, wow, he has adrenaline in his body and he is in a shutdown state of hypoarousal. What are the tools and strategies I can employ right now? Instead of, oh, I need to call home, this kid needs to be suspended, et cetera. And then it just escalates from there. And so knowing what's actually happening in in the brain and also in your own brain, just allows me to really, like I said, respond differently because the kid that's cussing at me, like literally today, is not about me. That's not an attack at me. That's not right. like they didn't walk in that morning and say, oh, I'm going to cuss at Mr. Wayne. Like, this is going to be a great day. Mm-hmm. It is just the physiological reaction to having those stress hormones in their body. Yeah. And so I don't take things personally anymore. And I, I think that's a huge shift that has to happen mm-hmm. if you're going to do this work because there's going to be behaviors, there's going to be a lot of challenges, and I can't walk away at the end of the day thinking like, oh God, every kid was out to get me, because it's just not healthy. Yeah. So knowing the brain science behind it has been that kind of catalyst, that key lever for me to switch the mindset. 
Okay, great. Yeah. So talk to us about home visits. What, um, what are they and how have they impacted your classroom culture? Oh my gosh, I love home visits so much. So home visits are amazing. Um, the idea is that the teacher and other um, staff at the school, any kind of stakeholders in the student's education can facilitate or participate in a visit outside of the school environment. And so I was trained through the parent-teacher home visit project. Um, and so essentially I visit families and we kind of decide on a place. Sometimes it's at their home, sometimes it's at the park. I did one at Taco Bell, which was super fun. Um, but the idea is just to move away from the classroom because I think for some families and just I, I think for a lot of like my own experience too the classroom and the school environment can be kind of a daunting place and so if yeah. you had a negative experience in school growing up it might be harder for you to want to meet with your child's fam you know teacher at the school site mm -hmm. um, and maybe not maybe you're just more comfortable sharing but the other cool thing about what home visits do is it really allows me as the teacher to to build a relationship and a connection with that family outside of them as a student in the desk. So I get to see where they eat dinner or where their favorite park slide is or what their favorite yeah. Taco Bell order is. Um, and building relationships is really, really crucial to that key component of safety and belonging in the classroom space. And so if we can build a connection um, and sharing cultural traditions and understand students beyond just that environment, um, it, it has a big impact. Wow, that's a cool way of um, being able to bring them back in, um, being able to re relate to something that was at home or, like you said, a, a favorite slide. Oh, that's a that's a good technique right there. Really, I'm, really cool because it just yeah. there and it's and it's non-punitive. Like it's not like I'm coming in to judge how clean their house is. Right, never, right, right. No, you know, and and even the home visit project that trained us, we have a set of questions that we ask. We can deviate from them, obviously, but it's like. What are your hopes and dreams for your child? What what was your schooling experience like? What else do you want us to know about like about this year and how things are going or do you have any questions or you know, and so it's just a really authentic way to build a genuine connection. Um, there's it, home visits are probably one of my most favorite things that I yeah. do. Yeah, but that's how we build relationships. But that's how we build relationships about learning more about someone. So yeah. that's a great tool. I like that. Yeah, no, it's awesome. <laughs> Explain your methods when using theories such as self self regulation and the emotional keyboard. Yeah, so I think, oh gosh, I love them so much. So as teachers, uh, as a teacher, I just, I know I cannot teach academics while also ignoring social and emotional components of the student. Like I have to teach the whole child. I cannot blow through a fractions lesson if a student is stressed and dysregulated. So mm -hmm. the emotional keyboard, so self-regulation in terms of that theory and teaching it, I, I brought that in at the beginning of the year and students are working weekly. We do like a 30 minute self-regulation session where I teach them a new coping strategy. We practice it together. We gauge how it feels in our body. We practice you know, what would it feel like outside of this classroom? What would it feel like on the bus? What would it feel like at the grocery store? So that they can kind of begin to make those um, connections to places that they could use them. Yeah. Um, and so we do a lot of regulating in class and have a lot of tools for it. Um, and then the emotional keyboard is just a list of traits um, or emotional responses that are not hardwired. And that's from Eric Jensen. Um, and so because of this, because we're not born with compassion and gratitude and 
sympathy, mm-hmm. we have to teach it to our kids. And so yeah. we can't assume that a student is going to just naturally be gracious or show gratitude uh-huh. because they're not born with it. And so yeah. if we have to model it and we have to teach it. Um, and so we do a lot of that in class too, like a lot of just explicit lessons around it. And they're short, like they're very small, tiny conversations throughout the day, even lining up for lunch or coming back from recess. Um, you know, what does it look like to have patience or understanding or humility, like all of those yeah. kind of key traits that um, that are, are explicitly taught. I didn't know that they were explicitly taught. Like, I don't remember as a kid having yeah. my mom go, hey, we're going to talk about gratitude today. Right. <laughs> I remember her saying, say thank you. Right, and, right. Yeah. So right. that, as teachers, we have to do that as well yeah. with our kids. Um, yeah. Because that's, you know, that was more just like a custom of a good thing to do, not necessarily, I guess, explaining it to us why we're saying thank you. You know what I'm saying? That was just a custom. And the other thing, too, is for trauma affected kids, there are six developmental areas that could be that could have deficits. And so uh, the emotional developmental area might have deficits. And so if you've incurred a trauma, Mm -hmm. you might not have as many skills or as many tools as a student that maybe has not to show that gratitude or to show that patience. Mm -hmm. And so we never want to assume that because they've experienced a trauma, they have deficits across the board. But we also want to do things to bolster those skills in kind of a proactive way. Mm, Yes, I like that. What is the regulation station and how do you check in with students who visit that area of your classroom? Yeah, so the regulation station kind of ties into that self-regulation theory. So there is a little corner of my classroom where um, students can go when they are feeling overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, worried, um, feeling their feels, I like to say. Um, But uh, it dysregulated, essentially, any of those, you know feelings and so they go to the corner um it has like a little tent and it's a cute little area with some tools and calming activities there's like therapy and finger fidgets and a rocking chair um and all of those tools are sensory tools that are specifically designed to regulate the emotional brain and so at the beginning of the year i teach students what it looks like to feel dysregulated, then to go to the station, to use a tool, and then to come back and rejoin the class in a way that's gonna be like, you know, not disruptive or distracting to others. Um, And so at the end, they can do breathing strategies. They can, honestly, sometimes they can close their eyes for five minutes, like they can take a little rest if they're feeling it. There's snacks over there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when they return, I have a little card that they have to fill out and they just tell me very briefly and it's all, you know, they don't have to share their name or anything, but I need data on who's using it. Um, And they just say, you know, why they went, why they needed to regulate, what tool they used, and if they were ready to come back to class or not. So just a little added accountability piece, just something extra so that I can, because if they're not ready to return to class or if there's something more that they want to check in about, I need to be aware of it, but I also don't want to put them on blast in the middle of reading and be like, hey, why are you over there? What are you feeling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just something small that's very, you know, it's, it's not a significant amount of time or extra writing, but they're not writing me an essay. They just yeah. check a little box and tell me what they, what tool they use and, and how they're feeling. As we all know, being an educator can be overwhelming at times. Tell us how important self-care is as a personal goal for you guys. Oh my gosh, it, it's so important and I'm glad too. I feel like the narrative is really changing around this in education as well. I also have to own fully that I, I've in years past, I've been really bad at this. I love what I do so much that it's very easy for me to continue to work and to mm-hmm. put in a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, 
but I also know that I have to be emotionally regulated and I have to be my healthiest version for my kids. And so, and I feel that in myself, like my, we talk a lot about the window of stress tolerance in our room, in my classroom. And so it's like my window of tolerance is smaller when I didn't sleep and when I ate a bunch of Snickers bars for lunch or when I, you know, and overwhelmed because I have report cards due and a family event and things like that. So I, I fully own now that self-care is beyond crucial and it's, it's more than bubble baths. Self-care is really like having the mental capacity to kind of work through and cope and, and regulate ourselves in a way that's really life-giving and meaningful for, for us as teachers. Oh, right. That's good. So what are your thoughts on how to reach out to schools to train designated teachers or staffs to be certified master grief coach? Do you have any information on that? Or how could we, you know, talk to the, um, I don't know if it's school boards or what should we do? Yeah. So most districts, I think, I think it's kind of, there's, there's a couple different ways you could go about it, but I think most districts will have, because of the ESSA that every student achieves acts, we nationally now, we have to have social emotional components in our school districts. Mm -hmm. And so what that looks like oftentimes is a department or a couple of people who are designated to um, work on those things. Mm -hmm. And so just reaching out to social emotional um, training specialists, instructional coaches, learning coordinators, whatever their um, job titles might be in some of the bigger districts might be a great strategy or approach. Um, And then the other piece is a lot of schools have social workers. And I think that would be the first step for sure. Like we have phenomenal social workers at my school who um, I think would really benefit from this and then could Mm -hmm. also kind of support bringing it to the teachers as well um, Mm -hmm. and helping to facilitate those conversations because they know our kids, they know the need. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, And how can we learn more about you? I'm on Instagram. As you <laughs> yes, <know>. you are. <laughs> my new BFF. Um, no, yeah. So my Instagram is just at Miss Duane, M S D U A N E. And on Twitter, it's my first name, Addison, A D D I S O N says. Um, and then I have a trauma informed podcast for classroom teachers specifically. Okay. And so it's not nearly as cool or fancy as yours. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely no, no, recording it. in my classroom. You are so legitimate. I want to be you. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> but the podcast is called The T, just the letter T, because it's two teachers talking, teaching, trauma, and then we always have to spill the tea. We have to do a little gossiping. of. Life. I love it. <laughs> oh, you go, girl. I love that. That's awesome. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. So, that's, so those are kind of the ways. Um, and then this fall, I will be entering, um, I'm going to get a PhD in trauma-informed classroom practices at Wayne State. So I'll be the first teacher in the nation to to be in this program that they've kind of specially um, put together. And um, so I'll be traveling a little bit and doing some consulting and then also a lot of presentations. uh, Amazing. I'm so proud of you. I I feel like I know I've known you forever. Congratulations, honey. Oh my God. It is very surreal, but I I am. I'm so excited. It doesn't know you worked hard. Oh gosh. (laughs) I know you worked hard. This was a rough season of life doing, figuring that out and then also teaching and doing it all. But it's worth it. So worth it. Yes, 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 yes. So I would, I'm going to ask you two more things. Um, Leave me with your um, your favorite quote. Okay. And what has your attention as an educator that you would like to see change or bring awareness to? 
Okay, so my favorite quote is from Alex Chevron. She's, Vinette is her new last name or maybe Vinay. Um, and it's a message to my students and I have to pull it up because it is just- uh, No problem. Um, but then the other thing that I'd like to see or bring further awareness to is again, just continuing the conversation around mental health and social emotional learning. I mean, I think trauma-informed practices is really the future. I keep telling everybody that. That might yeah. just be me like super passionate No, no, it is. It. You're right. It really, really is. And so if we can continue talking about it and bridging the gap between mental health practitioners and educators, I think we are going to see a massive shift um, nationwide and, and that's just going to benefit our kids so much. Yes, absolutely. I'm okay, here's my favorite quote. Let's see. It's a message to my students and it says... Okay, a message to my students. I care about you, you have value, you don't have to do anything to prove it to me, and nothing is going to change my mind. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> that is my favorite one. And I say that to my kids every day. Like, Aww. it doesn't matter what the effects of your trauma or your chronic stress, it doesn't matter what behavior you have, it doesn't matter what you do or yeah. say you are worth something now i'm gonna cry you matter you are valuable and nothing will ever change my mind gosh can we have like a million more of you <laughs> yeah no oh, i just gosh. yeah i'm in You're it for amazing this, so. thank you so much addison for coming on to the show i truly appreciate it grief nation listeners please follow like and share all of her posts um go talk to your school boards try to find out how can your school become a trauma-informed school and um research and learn more about it um addison once again thank you so much for coming on i truly appreciate you thank you i love you this was so fun <laughs> <laughs> love you back bye-bye bye well, there you have it, Grief Nation listeners, and thank you for tuning into What is a Trauma-Informed Educator with Addison Dwayne. Stay tuned for upcoming Grief Talk segments, and with much love and light, I'm your Master Grief and Energy Coach, Miami Knight. Shop in my night collections where all things are decor, and get your bedding, draping, decor wear, event supplies, and more. Click shop and adore at My Night Collection Decors.